doctor I said I'm feeling kind of rough Let me break it to you son Your shit's fucked up I said my shit's fucked up Well I don't see how He said the shit that used to work Won't work now well with Klondike now. Mm-hmm. Ross was mentioning that was, uh, an is that something you're working on now? Yes, yeah, that's what I'm doing here. And uh, it will appear if, uh, if our plans are considered acceptable on CBC and then elsewhere. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it took, uh, it took a while to get going, but the one distinction I make between the Canadian and American development systems is the Canadians develop a lot less, but they don't develop a lot of things they don't carry through with, which tends to be the reverse in, in uh, America. Um, so once you actually get the thing sold, unless you fuck it up in some monstrous way, um, or there's a regime change, um, you know, you can count on it with a higher degree of probability than you would be able to elsewhere. Just for listeners to know, uh, I'm talking to Ted Mann right now. Um, I guess we kind of started pretty quickly there. Uh, Ted's talking about the project he's working on right now called Klondike, he said. Yes, The Last Great Gold Rush is based on the book by Pierre Burton, originally published in the 1960s, and I remember seeing it 
in the Royal Trust uh, Company in stacks on the counter because it was sort of an object of, uh, of national pride and uh, they were giving it away like a toaster for people that opened accounts, you know. Um, and I liked it then and I, I always thought it would make a good show. Um, and I think I tried a couple times over the years, but it had been optioned a few times and uh, it was considered basically unmakeable because of the expense, um, but also because there are no central characters. So the one time I think it was sold to television, um, the people who bought it discovered that uh, they didn't have a lot of six-gun shootouts in Dawson City because it was in Canada they were shocked to discover. And so uh, they reset the entire story in Skagway, and it was about Marines or something. So <laughs> it never, never got made. You know. yeah. So this has been a passion for quite a while. Well, it's it's certainly been on my mind. I don't, I don't know if it would rise to the level of passions. I don't think I've I've had one of those um, for a while. Now, for listeners, um, I mean, it's a fantastic story. Don't get me wrong. But there are many that that ask to be done, and and I try to get to them. And I, the, you know, it's for pretty high on the list, or I wouldn't be doing it. Part of the reason. Um, it's interesting, like talking to Ted, uh, just kind of give some context. Um, pretty unusual for a person for me to talk to in the show. Um, but why we're talking is Ted uh, did comics in the 1970s um, with National Lampoon. Yes. And then also with High Times. Yeah, I think so. And Playboy. Did not know about Playboy? Yeah. I could do my research better. I can't remember what. Uh what it was, but I remember doing it and thinking it was funny. And at that time, that magazine paid very well. Perhaps they still do. I don't know. But they were kind of the pinnacle of um, of uh, uh, on the dollars for work ratio. So it was great to be uh, in there. And uh, I think it was with Frank Springer, but I can't remember. Now you're from Toronto originally. No, I was born in Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah, in West Vancouver. It's not far from where we're at right now. <laughs> not too far, just uh, <laughs> a few miles. Huh? Now, what got you connected at that point then with this, with the National Lampoon? Because um, well, geographically, had, you're pretty. I, I worked at a small publishing company and logging camps and place, uh, places like that. And the, the logging camps um, taught me quickly that uh, I didn't want to be a laborer. Um, and I sent, at the publishing company, I'd left a short story in one of the baskets, and the illustrator, Leo Burdak, uh, came and saw it, and um, without saying anything, uh, illustrated the story, and it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it turned out quite well, I thought. It wasn't um, something that perhaps you'd want to run full size, be just because of the nature of the artwork, but um, uh, I sent it into Lampoon because I'd sold them something already, um, and they bought that as well. And uh, probably it uh, was what encouraged me to move to to New York because I was could see that I could support myself there. And I know I had sold some comic stuff to the Georgia Strait, but the 
effort involved in collecting it actually burned more than $25 worth of food. So I, <laughs> I, I wasn't optimistic about uh, doing that for a living. Um, and ultimately Lampoon did run it and uh, they ran it very, very small in, in some kind of anthology, I forget what it was. It was two pages on a page, I remember it was. Yeah, it was kind of in, crammed in. Inset in, in towards the, the middle, or not the middle. Like it the may cover. have been a special called The Naked and the Nude that um, Brian McConaughey did, I, but I don't, I can't remember. And that comic was the, the fairy tale? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was just, it's exactly what you say. It was, it was extremely weird and uh, it didn't make a great deal of sense, perhaps, you know. But anyway, it, uh, it ran and uh, so did I um, in New York. So you just kind of gave up Vancouver and just kind of threw well, yourself Well, there was no way it. for an artist to earn a living here then, mm -hmm. um, at least not, you know, and, and I imagine it's still pretty difficult if you want to dance ballet for a living, or, or or write creatively, or you know, you would you would have to go to where there was a market for that, and uh, the big one is in New York. So you didn't have any kind of um, educational background in writing. No, none, none. In fact, very little educational background at all, unless you count the Carnegie Library system, where I educated myself. I. I uh, left home at 14 and traveled first I think to Nova Scotia or Newfoundland by the railroads and hitchhiking railroads being infinitely preferable to the people who uh, stop and pick you up because they almost all want to have sex with you almost every one of them and some of them are quite pleasant some invite their wives, some don't, you know. Mm. All men in my day, but perhaps now you get a few women as well. <laughs> They're coming out of their shells. Um, at that point, were you writing at all for yourself when you are Well, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, if I guess if you mean for pleasure without commercial <laughs> purpose to it, probably not, you know. I mean... I still do a lot of, would be the equivalent of artist sketches, and uh, I'll do maybe a hundred of them for a large project to feel the character in the places where they might be found and so forth. And I don't know if that, I, it didn't come from, from art, but it's a very similar process. Mm -hmm. You know, you figure out how to write or draw someone, you've got to look at them all around at every, at different junctures of their lives and establish how they may respond to their own needs and the demands of others, confrontation, that kind of thing. And that's something that's kind of stuck with you throughout your time? Yeah, it's just a way of, way of working, you know. Um, what did you read? What were you reading in the oh, West uh, that made you start writing? Start I read drawing? everything. And I, I started in the library, the West Vancouver Library, I remember reading Kafka very early, like about 12, but the, uh, the, uh, the short story that made me want to become a writer and made me realize the power of writing was um, uh, called The Dead from James Joyce's Dubliner's Collection. Mm -hmm. And 
What was yeah. it about Joyce? Was it all Joyce or just that story? Well, not all of Joyce, although I, I've read all of it. The, um, that particular story uh, um, made me aware that characters, even though frozen in time, could be very much alive, that you could actually sense and see that they were uh, living in the mind of the writer, and they were as real as uh, anyone you were likely to meet on the street. And uh, that was quite a revelation. Um, I haven't bumped into it too many more times since, you know, but once in a while. It's funny hearing you describe like that, because it just makes me think of, like, um, work you've done on Deadwood, um, and just kind of, like, I get that same feeling from there of these, like, really full characters in this particular point in time. Yeah. Like, you see one guy who's, like, sitting in the corner, and there's a lot to that Yeah. Yeah, David and I have a very, David Milch, who uh, created Deadwood, I have a very similar um, ways of working and uh, uh, a literary aesthetic. Uh, and I would say he would be the last of my uh, my teachers. So, um, yeah, that's true. When you went to New York, um, did you just kind of sh getting involved with the National Opinion just kind of show up at the office? Or yeah, pretty exactly much. And I, I believe that I would encourage other people to do that. If there's something you want to do, establish who, the, who is the best in the world at it, in your opinion, and then go knock on their door. Yeah. And uh, as long as you're not 55 or something, you'll probably get a reasonably <laughs> warm reception. And uh, it used to be very common. And if you wanted to uh, study at university, you would. Um, you know, um, learn a little bit about William James, and you would show up at Professor James's door and knock on it and say, I'd like to, you know, learn. And they would manage to get you into the school and stuff. You did not hang out and complete your um, CV and perfectly typed and, uh, and then enter it in some kind of a lo educational lottery. You know, that, that was preposterous, and it's a mark of mediocrity. I was reading um, the dead, the stoned, dead. I can't remember. Oh the yeah, name. yeah, that book. Rick Myritz's book. Yeah, the big National Lampoon book. Um, yeah. And I think Sherry Flanagan, her quote about you—it was either her or someone else—said uh, you're the most un uninhibited <laughs> and unpredictable writer at the time. No, that's probably true. They say a lot of things like that. But other, you know, I'm, somebody else said, no, I can't even remember the quote, so I won't do it justice, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, some of the people that I, uh, that, that adopted me when I was there because I was young and because I was such an oddball coming from where I did, they, they were all products of Harvard University, you know. Uh, and I had a lot to learn, they had a lot to teach, so it all worked out, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, I was able to learn fairly quickly. Was that a crash course in commercial writing? No, no, not at all. I mean, it was the least commercial writing in the world, but uh, uh, 
it, it was a crash course in civilization and uh, social history and politics and analytical thinking and comedy and uh, you know um, making of the self. I was looking through a bunch of the National Lampoons over the last couple of days, and your work is very, I'd say, verbose, like very mm -hmm. full, full written work. Um, balance also, you're doing a lot of comic stuff, and was that an interest of yours for writing for comics? Or well, do you feel I, like I still believe in the, uh, if, a, if a good story, uh, I mean a story worth telling, um, a lot of them are shaped by the form in which they're told, and the uh, the printed word is just one form. And uh, the best example of the use of many forms, uh, uh, complementary forms, to tell a story um, in a full issue of the magazine was was something I did called uh, O.C. and Stiggs. These two white male middle class. Um, uh, and extremely destructive characters. Well, it used comics, it used receipts, it used photographs of the floor, it used photo fametis, it, you know. It used every available um, uh, technique to tell the same story because there's certain parts of it that are told by a science report. There are others that are told by a parking ticket or a photograph of the floor, the wheel well of a Volkswagen um, bug, and uh, and I still uh, believe in that to this day. And I have a a, a, a story about Vincent Van Gogh and uh, Paul Gauguin and the nine weeks that they spent together living at Arles which culminated in Vincent cutting his ear off and giving it to a whore named Rachel. And I have, it, I have done it as a film script, a play, and I am uh, hoping somebody will uh, illustrate it for me so we can do it as an illustrated novel, but I haven't found the artist yet. The guy I last talked to, you may know, his name is Nick Paul Woko or something. And he's a good artist, he does a lot of some superhero stuff. And, um, but he is so busy doing his commercial work and he loves it so much, you know, his superheroes, that I, I don't think that that will work out. But ideally, that's what I do. I do it as a play, I do it as a musical, um, I, I would do it as, as film, um, I would create additional, you know, artistic material that you would use to. Uh, for the sets of the play, you would use as um, illustrations in the, you know, the uh, book, and uh, it would all feed back and forth into each other, and some kind of a giant um, a Gauguin Van Gogh story loop of forms, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I, I just think you should use all the resources available, you know. You're still kind of in that mindset. You're not necessarily limited to no film. No, but film's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty powerful medium. If you had to choose just one, you know, a lot of people are unable. They don't have the imaginative resources for one reason or another to uh, to fully engage with like strictly with print. Um, and there are 
more people who will go with it, you know, able to come to grips with an illustrated novel, um, but there are also people who find that form forbidding because they think it is juvenile or something. Oh, I got to tell you, when I first went to New York, one of the first artists I met was a guy named Artie Spiegelman. I asked him what he was doing, and he said, uh, doing a story about a concentration camp, you know, where the mice are, uh, the Jews and the Germans are big cats or something. Said, Artie, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't have to buy that. Did you see his show two months ago at the art gallery? No. <laughs> no. Did you read the book when it came oh out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it I was. really loved it. Artie did a fantastic job. Did you get to know a lot of the, the local New yeah. York underground scene? Yeah. I mean, so it soon became overground, but mo most of those um, folks started in the underground, especially the artists, but a lot of the writers as well. And uh, Al Goldstein at Screw Magazine kept an enormous <laughs> number of people alive by yeah. Uh, you know, buying anything you did, you know, and publishing it right next to the blowjob pictures or something, you know, so you couldn't show your mom. <laughs> I got to go to the Screw Magazine offices when I went to New York a couple of years ago. It was uh, very shortly before they closed down. <laughs> was it on 14th Street still? No, it was in, they had just moved into a new office. Mm -hmm. It used to be a real filthy hole. I, I've heard, I've known, uh, one guy, Bob Fingerman, would do comics about when he'd go there to sell them comic strips, <laughs> and it just sounded like the most disgusting <laughs> place. Yeah, it was just kind of dirty. But uh, Al and I started the first phone sex line in uh, in the world. <laughs> what? And uh, yeah, so people could phone in, you know, and they'd get some erotic story read to them. But the problem was, not only was it before the answering machine, it was before it was legal to attach recording equipment to your phone, so you couldn't hook a tape recorder up to it, you had to rent the equipment, as they called it, from the phone company, which were these giant boxes you never did see inside them. But the phone sort of plugged in, there's just a tape recorder in there. And uh, <laughs> so then you had to hire like a person to handle the billing, and she would take the orders and say, oh, you want to get your husband Allison's hotline for his birthday, $40, you know, and um, collect all the money and record the stuff and then they'd get this phone number that they could call in but then of course you know they give it to their friends or, you know whatever so the overhead the uh, management overhead was too much for people like uh, me and Al um, but it was very successful and uh, if we had come up with it a few years later when the 976 numbers came into existence for exactly the same reason yeah. Um, he wouldn't be living on the charity of the magician um, Penn. Oh, Penn Teller. Of Penn and Teller. He'd be, uh, well, he probably would have squandered it somewhere else. He, he, he lived, I know I would have. He lived high off the hog for a while, didn't he? Meh, you know, he liked to eat and he l enjoyed sex and that was about it. He didn't... Uh, I didn't know him very well. We just had that one business together. New York in the 70s sounds kind of mythical to folks my age. <laughs> well, I remember hearing stories about them 10 years earlier and thinking, what a strange place. They had, the mob used to control the porno industry. They never took over Screw. They tried. 
Um, and they came into the office with shotguns, and Al was there with his gay accountant, and the money was locked in the safe. They said, open the safe. And the accountant said, I don't, I don't have the combination, only he's got it. He said, open the safe or we'll blow his head off. And Al said, go ahead. sitting <laughs> there. What the fuck? And Al wouldn't open it, and they uh, packed up their shotguns and they left. But uh, shortly before that, the mob ran all the porno, and in order to have their... Uh, their uh, books, and there were still people who read porno books. They had these long tables, like picnic tables, with typewriters at them, royals, and uh, it was 25 cents a page. So there'd be like 10 writers around these tables, pounding away all day long, turning out the pages. And that's why a lot of that, um, I think Terry Southern did that, and some people, uh, people like that. Maybe go nameless, but they still <laughs> sit there and uh, turn the stuff out, and they would get quite creative to avoid being bored to death. So that's how you see some of this. I'm convinced that a lot of uh, what rappers do every day in the dressing room is really the fruit of an imagina of the imagination of Terry Southern in 1972. Because it's sort of entered the mainstream as a as a sex act without precedent, you know. Yeah, it's just like too ridiculous to. I was um, when we went to New York. The person I went with uh, does a magazine about cult movies and sleaze uh, called Cinema Sewer. Yeah. And uh, one of the big things that Bougie wanted to do is we went to Show World. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I he wanted, that he wanted to see Show World, and I was reading an article today about how Howard Chaikin took someone to watch a live sex show there, and it sounds pretty crazy. That was um, run by a guy named, uh, known as D.B., but he was D. Bernardino, and he, he worked for the crime family that John Gotti took over, but he was intelligent, unlike John Gotti, and so Gotti killed him, which left Nobody run their most single most lucrative business, which was centered around show world. But I remember him showing me the upstairs where they had these machines that looked like laundromat dryers, and they'd pour the sticky contents of the quarter boots oh, in there, yes. and it would make oh. a sound like <laughs> as the quarters began to spin, and then it would buff them out in rolls, and they'd twist the top. And uh, yeah, it it generated an enormous amount of money, and they uh, they're still control of the porno business most of it. And they, but then they they had they had just done that Deep Throat movie, and then they did Behind the Green Door, and they made millions. I mean, they made millions, and they had to, you know, they just thought it was uh, it was going to be keep continuing, and so they. Uh, they funded a bunch of movies uh, more ambitious than the, than Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door, and eventually the the model didn't work because the v, the VCRs came in and stuff, and the theaters were dead, and um, and DB was shot, so there was nobody to sort of keep up with uh, keep up with it for the mob. But I'm sure they still got Show World, and they could start over. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we hung out with uh, Jamie Gillis, who was an actor back then. Sure, yeah. And Jamie's said to Bushi, "Ah, oh, man, back in the seventies, you got ten bucks and 
go down to the basement there and you get whatever you want. Yeah. It was well, I, I guess you wouldn't. If you were not too discriminating, I yeah. guess. You know. <laughs> he told us a lot more stories. I'll leave for uh, Bougie to, to regale the world with one day. Yeah. Hmm. Um, now, while working National Lampoon, did you have interest in that time of going into film, or was it something that just kind of happened from working well, on? In 1985, it was clear to me that magazine business was dying, and... Uh, and I didn't want to die with it, so I wrote an issue of the magazine that was intended to be made into a movie and kept the rights and all this stuff. It was quite difficult. Um, and it did. And uh, three or four different directors were bidding for it, and it was my entree into uh, film and television. And that was uh, O.C. and... That was O.C. and Stiggs, yeah. With Robert Altman. Ultimately, it turned out to be Robert Altman, yeah. Now, before that, I was looking, and you'd done Disco Beaver from Outer Space. That was uh, HBO's first um, dramatic, sh first non-film show. It's the first thing they ever produced themselves. And uh, Michael Fuchs was running HBO then. He was terrified he would get fired because it was so weird. I, I watched some scenes on YouTube. I couldn't find anywhere to see the whole thing, and it seems pretty... It was very kind of abstract in a way. It was, yeah. The humor was very odd. It was like photos of Jackie O. Yeah, I don't remember, but it used to be able to buy it on uh, Amazon. It's not really worth buying any more than a Robert Altman film is. You, know, but. <laughs> you have your preferences. Um, yeah. Tell me about how important it is for writers, because you talked about you kept the rights for that, and um, I mean that's really the success stories you hear from things is folks that are able to keep the rights, or even was kind of understood that that was important. Yeah, I mean I think everybody knows um, that they're potentially very valuable, and there's always been a bit of a tug of war between writers and publishers over that. And right now, um, because the market is so. Um, distressed, even magazines like Vanity Fair that I, I work for from time to time um, are now trying to to take those rights and uh, to sell them themselves. I mean, for 20 years freelancers would do an article all the magazine bought and felt entitled to was first serial publication rights, after that publish it anywhere you want. Sometimes there'd be an exception. They have their Italian or Spanish edition. They have a right to publish it in that. But that's the end of it, you know. Sometimes they would say, well, if it gets spot for a uh, film, we get 10%. And that would be the limit of it. And now they try and take it all. Take it all. And people who are uh, ha have a, a track record or something like Mark Jacobson at uh, New York, who's a... Uh, had a couple of things made into movies or in a position to be able to tell them to, you know, fuck off. But, yeah. you know, if you're selling your first story, that's not as, as easy for you to do. I think it's the same in any industry at this point. Oh, it's, it's a lot worse than it used to be. I mean, you look at those poor bastards at Gawker Media or something. They have to write for page clicks and they even get paid for it. And the distortion even of a, you know, 
even of a good writer is just terrible what it does to their work. They're turned into like geeks. They're like carnival geeks. Oh yeah. Eating the, the heads yeah, of the mice. Bite your cock off. Yeah. You know, you'll get a good crowd. <laughs> I was uh, I know some friends that were working for a comics blog, um, that AOL owned and apparently that AOL owned all the rights for every post. Yeah. You did and for eternity, right? Yeah, and I know other folks are pretty horrified when they heard about just about how. Well, a lot of times, you know, um, there's an advantage in it in that they're so incompetent at exploiting them that, you know, you can ultimately reclaim them. They don't know what they own, you know. That's, um, so it's not always the kiss of death, and you have to survive. And um, I, I think, though, uh, that that you couldn't survive with Gawker Media because the what it does to your work and the way you think about things is it invests it with a particular form of cynicism that is fatal to the creative impulse and you will you know you need uh, ten years of um, monastic life in the high uh, Himala Himalayas to get your uh, spirit and intellect back in a position where you can do some honest creative work. Have you f yourself with writing, um, so that's been important to you to be able to kind of stand behind the work? Well, I've had the shows periods when I failed to and I, I learned the, uh, the hard lessons involved, but um, uh, and now, uh, now, uh, I I uh, I have um, enough money that I don't have to work for money anymore, so I I choose to work with the people that, um, but I think understand what it is I'm trying to do and aren't going to get upset about deadlines, for example, uh, unnecessarily, and uh, and I only work on what I like. I mean, if you come in and you have a great deal of money and you need something that I don't do. I mean, there's a time when I would have just taken your money, you know. Yeah. But I, I uh, just steer you off in a way that might be helpful to you if possible. What were some works that you feel particularly um, as you kind of got more and heavily involved in in writing film and TV um, that you have that like strong artistic link to? You look back and like that's Kind of well, I mean, in the in the television stuff, um, that it's it was always the responsibility for the final product um, what, what was not mine, and uh, um, so any kind of affection I feel for the work, I, you know, I I don't don't have it regard exclusively for myself. It's also shared with the director and the. Mm -hmm. um, whoever the producer may have been. But there was a show uh, that I did in 1984 um, at a time w w w we were lucky to do it, uh, and we did it at Universal, and it aired at 12 o'clock at night, and it was syndicated. It wasn't on the network. Nobody could figure out why we want to do it at all. Um, because it was people were making so much money in network shows about talking cars or you know um, a sort of hooligan TV that they couldn't understand why we would do this show 
at 12 o'clock at night, and, uh, which was about cops in Newark, you know, it was all shot handheld, and we made it for $75,000 an episode, and we shot it on videotape, which was considered to be impossible. $75,000 was ridiculous. We got um, really good actors, um, like Stanley Tucci was the young cop. People are well known now. And it was a really good show, and uh, we made 40 of them or something. And Universal didn't even notice, you know, it, was, it just didn't register, it was too small. But it was really gratifying and people, um, and it died the death because of the writer's strike or something. But it was enormously influential, um, even though nobody saw it, almost nobody remembers it. Steve Chow uh, at Fox saw it and um, said to me, uh, the show's really great. The only problem is it has writers. I'm going to do it over again, but without writers. And he made cops. <laughs> he made cops and be gave birth to what became reality TV. Yeah. Um, a mixed blessing. Um, but that's what the show was, and it, w it was a lot of fun to do. What and was the show? It was called The Street. I have a few episodes. It'd be pretty hard to watch now because of the... The quality film. of the tape, you know, but uh, it was quite, quite acceptable then. How did you end up getting involved on NYPD Blue with Milch? Did you already know him before that? No, in fact, I had declined the opportunity to meet him when he was doing um, Hill Street because I didn't want to do television at the time, and uh, but I was doing something else for Stephen Bochco and. Um, I ran into him in the hall. I didn't really know who he was, um, but but uh, I I liked him a lot, and I could see he was uh, he was very very smart. And uh, we went out to the racetrack, and he had horses then. And uh, and yeah, so that's how I, I met him. And then we worked for a couple years on that, and. Um, I tend to get a little tired after two years on the same thing, so I went on to uh, work with Don Johnson, a non-productive uh, creative partnership. And I ended up r retiring before his show was made. Tell me about um, Deadwood and like kind of that transition getting involved there, because with that, um, because some stuff you're touching on as far as like really getting vision and writers realizing Deadwood for me um, and maybe Claire could probably chip in here is one of the important things about that show is just how it's such a written show mm -hmm. like that the, the every character has their own voice well I think up until very recently um, the feeling was that uh, if you were in television or movies, it's all very well, you make some money, but the real game was uh, was literature, and that your proper uh, place as an artist was not making pictures on a bedsheet with your fingers and funny voices, it was um, telling stories um, as they've always been told uh, in, in, in the novel. And um, I, I know David felt that way. Um, 
because he once once said to me, you know, that if if he hadn't had the problems he had encountered with alcohol and uh, narcotics, that he felt his proper place was, he might have written um, a very large novel. And I said, well, I, you know, I felt, um, and he came to feel that that it is possible to do. Uh, work of that kind in film, but you have to believe it's possible, otherwise you'll never get to it. And uh, it makes for some some noble failures as well, of course, but uh, you know, there was a quote from uh, of Hunter Thompson's that used to be attached to the refrigerator of every story editor and producer in television um, with any pretensions to uh, being hip and it was something about a TV is a shallow money trench where uh, people slave like and good men die like dogs blah 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 and uh, it uh, it indicated a lack of faith in all possibility and a contempt for your own work which was pretty general mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it still is I do know that at the networks that um, it is widely held by people in development that the audiences are morons. They refer to them as, you know, snot eaters and uh, and make jokes about the, you know, getting the gum stuck inside their baseball hats and stuff. And uh, it, it, there's nothing you can say about an audience. An audience is an audience, but you can say something about people who conceive of their viewers that way, and that is that they are afraid. And um, in order to protect themselves from the, the awareness of the mediocrity of their own work, they say, well, the reason is like that is because that's all these people can understand. They can't grasp anything more complicated. I can. I can appreciate it. I love it. But unfortunately, I live in the real world. And the real world is full of snot eaters, and therefore I can only put on these crap shows that I'm putting on because yeah. people won't watch the other ones. Well, that's not true, of course. But every you know three and a half minutes, you got to prove it over again, you know. And uh, so, so, David was the chance to prove it. Yeah, it was David's chance to prove to himself that, you know, that uh, he could do something as um, as dense and complex and uh, nuanced in television as it was possible to do in film. I think he did. Now, I've heard different kind of people telling stories of how the writing happened. Um, one is that David would, what, what does he say? Was, I think it was a article in the New Yorker that sort of described this almost mythical scene of him lying on the floor and right. transcribing and, and that all the other writers in the room would just have to sort of sit silently and observe the master at work. Well, most of them were interns, and uh, but there were, there were other writers who I would say are, are, were journeymen, um, and they would, they would indeed be quiet while he was writing. Um, I did not spend any time in there because of rather be stuck in the eye with a fork. <laughs> and I think I said that to Mark Fisher, and he quoted me on that in The New Yorker, and I was wondering uh, how David would take it. And then he was walking back across the 
yard and I was smoking a cigar and he just looked up and he said, uh, um, I don't think I'd want to watch you write either. So when you wrote for Deadwood, you wrote on your own and you... I would just, uh, I would just anticipate what scenes were needed based on the scenes that had been written and sometimes I'd be right sometimes I'd be wrong but well, I'd just give them to him and he would he would fuck with them and stick them in mm -hmm. um, but I worked with him a long time and as I said I we share I believe a certain um, literary aesthetic so uh, I was able to get pretty close most of the time now the I was looking kind of Linking to one of your comics, I was looking at the uh, Frank Thorne comic you'd written. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the, was it Ranger Dangerette? Danger Ranger. Danger Rat, Rat, yeah. um, I think that's been made into a few movies as well. <laughs> what kind of movies? <laughs> There's one about a female forest ranger who's out fighting bears and amorous, you know, other rangers and stuff like that. Now, you did an intro for that one where you talked about how you'd always been interested in, in Indians when you were a kid, um, hmm. and right now you're working on the Klondike. So was there a kind of attraction to the West for yourself writing on that? Um, well, I, I like frontiers. Um, don't have to be the West, but the frontiers and the, the primitive um, have some attraction for me. It's just... Um, uh, a lot of uh, the benefits of, of uh, civilization and culture are, you know, accompanied by uh, a, a lot of filler, you yeah. know, that is not so attractive. Whereas the 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 indigenous cultures here are in the Amazon, and um, they they offer very little in the way of comforts, but they they do have. Um, ways of managing the psyche and the self that are, are quite sophisticated and very interesting. Um, uh, it, it's just uh, a way, I think, of looking at the mind that is, uh, is kind of helpful because you, 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 it's not been tampered with by a lot of advertising and um, uh, cultural programming. A very sort of honest results. So you can see the capacity of the mind to accommodate um, a whole different ways of life, you know, uh, uh, moral systems and uh, you know everything basically, right down to the right down to the wood. So. Um, now the Klondike, you've been working on that for some time now. Yeah, Tom, uh, who who with his partner Lisa and Matt run um, this company, which is now part of another company. Um, and I sold it, uh, or took it to sell to Toronto a year, a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. And it took about a year for them to make up their minds. They finally did. And then, you know, it just moved very slowly, but surely, I like to think, slowly but surely. So I really only started working on it um, intensely a few weeks ago. We took a... Uh, a couple of trips to the Yukon. Um, the most recent one, we went down the river uh, following the same route by boat. Um, quite an adventure. And just, we got back a month ago or something. And there's a lot of direct connection between Vancouver and the Yukon. 
at that point, wasn't it? Oh, there? yeah, it was one of the big departure points. San Francisco, Seattle, and Vancouver. This was the Canadian or Commonwealth departure. Victoria was a, a weak rival. But, uh, yeah. And Seattle was the great winner just because they had a, they had a proto PR man um, who, 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 who did this masterful um, sort of advertising and promotional campaign for Seattle, the port of departure. And it was so effective, he, he, he fell for his own bullshit and he joined the stampede and went up there and <laughs> froze his ass off. <laughs> I meant to bring you, there's a, um, a comic that a friend of mine had done a couple of years ago about the economy I meant to bring, but I totally forgot. Now I can't even think of the name of it. I'm not sure. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to Ross to bring to you. It's a strange place. It's not the, the Yukon that it was, for sure. I mean, the, the, um, the filter that the, that the, that the, the uh, pre-civilized life puts on things, like a sea in the Amazon, um, where you work or you die, is no longer the case up in the Yukon. They mm -hmm. have a very well-developed social welfare system and they have the government um, employing 60% of the population and stuff. A lot of arts grants up there. It should be the artistic capital of Canada, it should be. It probably is. I know a lot of people that will go up there hmm. and just do art, get paid to do art up there. Yeah, I, I saw quite a bit of it there and uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's just some nice stuff. I, I don't know if it'll ever be viable, but it, I think it keeps people from cutting their wrists, which is always a temptation in the Yukon, mm -hmm. especially at night. Or in the winter when it's all night. Well, there was a woman there. Everybody, you know, when you visit somewhere and they, they see you as a representative, some outside force, the tendency is to make, to create a good impression for yourself and your community. and. Uh, everybody talks about, you know, a wonderful life outdoors and close contact with nature and all the incredible benefits that accrue. But then after a few days of sitting with some people and they were relaxed, and I hadn't heard a word of, of well, it gets a little tough below, 55 below, and somebody says, well, where's, where's Kathy? I haven't seen Kathy for a while. He says, well, she hasn't gone out of bed, you know. And he says, since when? He says, well, since since this last cold snap started, you know. That was two weeks ago. So, Kathy, you know, everybody there goes out to Hawaii or to Costa Rica or someplace in the winter because they have these government jobs I guess they can afford to. Big tax breaks. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but not, you know, I mean, and if you don't, there, there are these, these mental psychic penalties that you pay, and they were... They were pretty large in the old days, and I think these grants and stuff do do somewhat reduce the price of, you know. Is that kind of part of the interest for yourself, just the different dynamics you can see because it is such a pretty unique well, yeah. time and place? Yeah, I mean, it really did throw people uh, on their own resources then, and it was the end of a 10-year depression. If you were employed at all, you were lived in fear and trembling at your bank that your employer would, you know, think you were acting funny and fire you, you know. When these people left their jobs as clerks and shoemakers and uh, bus drivers and went up to the north, uh, very few of them ever found gold, 
But if they were successful and they came back, they had a kind of confidence that did not allow them to be overly oppressed by any bank manager or mm-hmm. bureaucrat or bus driver, and they, they were just, you know, they knew who they were in a way that they didn't before. And uh, it sounds a little trite, but I think it was, it was very true. And uh, Have you been kind of inhaling a lot of historical book works on oh, yeah. time? Yeah. I mean, I'll end up by reading hundreds. And uh, yeah, we find all kinds of odd, odd things. Um, the biggest collector of uh, uh, Klondike historical materials in the country is a man named Lynn, who's the uh, one of the people who run um, the Rogers Cable System. And his, I guess it would be Grand Uncle, also named Lynn, uh, was there in '97 and. You know, you hear the florid stories about, you know, excessive behavior by some of the lunatics, um, and there were many. And they're all very colorful, but you never hear the stories about who made a fortune and kept it, you yeah. know. And uh, and Mr. Lynn was, was one of those who did um, um, a list that's probably four or five fingers, you know, of people that were sane, they worked hard, they were industrious. They were sober, they were, you know, often sort of stable emotionally, you know. Um, a lot of people would just drink away their drinking finding if they can find it. Just throwing it away so they won't have the responsibility and guilt that comes with money. Some people were just totally fear stricken the moment they had it, you know, that it was gonna get stolen, you know. And spend days hiding it everywhere. Did you ha did you Put this kind of research analysis in when you did the Hatfield and McCoys. A lot of that was done, um, and also the guy um, who transcribed my uh, my write on a digital machine like this, the man who pr- d- transcribed for me was married to a Hatfield and had spent 20 years, you know, researching the stuff. So if I wanted to know who. The albino kid's second cousin. How was he related to X? You know, he he would know, and he could tell me. Um, so it, it it wasn't the uh, the difficult historical research that I did one on Texas recently, which I have uh, I retired from. It was meant to be six hours, and I just got the first two done and the outline, but. I did all the research and stuff, and I I, I know so much about Texas now, which is good because I love it. But uh, and it turned out beautifully, and uh, ultimately I'm sure will appear, uh, um, and we'll see if the name stays on or off when that happens. You know, it's uh, I've been reading uh, Jack Jackson was this underground cartoonist did a lot of historical stuff about Texas and it's. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating, just yeah. The true story is almost never told. It's too frightening and disturbing for yeah. most people. Yeah, like stories of people being slaughtered in their Comanches were formidable opponents who really. Um, I mean, the the uh, Scottish Presbyterian or uh, Scottish Baptist settlers were uh, certainly um, 
uh, murderous, and they could they could kill with the best of them, but they didn't enjoy torture. It just wasn't in them, you know. The Comanches would spend, uh, and they were not they were not foremost amongst the active tribes, um, but they would could spend a couple of days torturing a prisoner, and then if they disliked them, they would hand them over to the women, who would spend like weeks slowly cutting them up. So. Not stories you tell every day, you know. No, but I think it's important to know. Yeah. At least I do. I'm I'm a history major, so you know. Yeah, no, it's it is important, so. and there are other areas in in that history. Um, the General Santa Ana, who was also the president of Mexico and was to be president of Mexico twelve times, as much as he was hated by the Texans, he he is. Despised um, by the Mexicans in a in a more universal way, and although he was president of the country twelve times, he's not even in the school books. They do not like to talk about him. He gave yeah. away half the country. He was a thief. He was an embarrassment. They're ashamed of it. And they like to pretend it doesn't occur, so they do. It's like not a good idea, psychic psychically. Mm -hmm. It's like that Simpsons episode where they uh, they're in Germany and they ask, "What happened then?" We were on vacation. That's right. Well, in Berlin, and I was was there. They had a uh, where the Gideon Bible might be in your your North American hotel room. They had a copy of the uh, the UN Proclamation of the Universal Rights of Man. So <laughs> the heading about genocide being underlined because I think during the winter months in Berlin, just about everybody starts thinking about genocide. And there's the book right there to help you out if your mind runs away with some fantasy. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Ted. I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Our uh, minor folks have been talking to Ted Mann, and uh, you can find him on TV in Deadwood and Hatfield McCoys, and one day soon the Klondike, and in a handful of comics you might find some National Lampoons, and uh, issue five of Frank Thorne's Erotica. Make note of that one. I haven't seen that. I, I haven't even seen a copy. I found it online. <laughs> I remember Frank used to, um, I, he liked redheaded women oh, yeah. with enormous breasts. And he used to travel around with them to comic conventions. And he would have three or four girls who all had red hair and enormous breasts. And they would dress up in these costumes. And Frank would dress as a wizard. And he's like crazier than any of the fans, you know? They just had someone, a terrific time. Someone just uh, posted footage of one of those performances he did with... Uh, Red Sonja, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Wendy Peeney, mm. the did ElfQuest comic, dressed up as Red Sonja. One of our friends is really obsessed with that. Um, yeah, no, Frank's uh, he's a treasure. There's not too many artists who really draw erotically in that genre. Um, did, did Frank, I mean, did he do... I would just see the Helmut Newton of. Uh, I didn't think his stuff was that erotic. No, I don't don't remember it as being at all. I mean, it was buxom and playful, but it wasn't like, yeah, it was like Annie Fanny or something. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, uh, he's still making art. He's doing abstract paintings now. His eyesight's kind of reduced a lot, and so he's still. He's a good artist. Paintings. I liked his drawing. Though. Yeah, he's fantastic. I was surprised to hear he was still alive because he's in his yeah. 80s. So. I think he was, I thought of him as being fairly old then. 
big white beard or something. Maybe he is a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Thank you so much, Ted. You're welcome. Day. 